0: What you need to do to hold yourself accountable is not to focus on this enormity of your dreams and the massive work that's gonna take to get there. It's focusing on being better tomorrow than you were today.
1: Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, Wherever you're from and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I cannot wait to introduce today's guest to all of you today. His name is Trey Williams, a nationally recognized expert in entrepreneurship and business strategy. Trey is horrified by the significant decline of entrepreneurship in America and has made it his mission to rescue one million entrepreneurs from traditional employment. His new book, Boss Brain, reveals a scientifically proven system that unlocks readers' true potential and unleashes their entrepreneurial instincts so they can leave traditional employment forever. That's the real American dream. I cannot wait to talk about that. Welcome to The Daily Helping, Trade. It's great to have you.
0: I'm very excited to be here, Dr. Richard. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So
0: I've kind of had this
1: one circled on my calendar for a bit because it's so timely. And I know this decline of entrepreneurship has been going on long before the COVID outbreak. Of course, that's going to be worse now. But why did you start this journey? Did you have a a really horrible boss in a Mm. a traditional job (laughs) and decided never again? Like, What's the path that, that led you to doing this?
0: So I'll give you a uh, an interesting scenario where I think it began. And I, I suppose I, I viewed this through my own lens. So this may or may not be true. I might be constructing my own, own version of the past. But when I look at it, I grew up in a very rural environment. I grew up about 12 miles from away from the closest red light. Uh, I grew up on a farm in southeastern Georgia. And out there, there are there's no low-hanging fruit. There's no readily available jobs. There's no certainty in your life, an opportunity that is just sitting there waiting for you to make a decision among the choices that life makes readily available to you in your environment. And as a result, it it forces you in a strange way to to become very entrepreneurial, to look for opportunity, to manufacture ways, to to create opportunity where it doesn't exist. And I really think that was the impetus for at least my my lens and how I view the world, but uh, it wasn't a horrible boss. I think it really came down to, because I had that feeling and that drive, I was never really a fantastic employee. Um, I, was, I was always uh, a very strategic thinker and always looking for opportunity and ways to, to grow the business. And, and in the end, I, in my heart, I always knew that's what I was destined for. I, I moved in and out of entrepreneurship, and I was sometimes a W-2 employee, sometimes not. And uh, I always, hopefully, had been aiming toward uh, no W-2, which was my all, my goal toward the the end of life, where I am 47 now, and I look at it and think I'm in a position now where I can solidly commit myself to entrepreneurship going forward, and I want to empower others to do the same.
1: I love that. I, I think that's fantastic. And, and in fact, you're telling me what a lot of people tell me, that it's not really till your mid-40s where things actually click. And, and certainly I interview a lot of entrepreneurs who are, are younger than that. But for many people, that seems to be when that, that kind of comes together. Now, I, I want to go back to something I read about your intro, the the, the horror, horrified about the significant decline <laughs> of entrepreneurship in America. Why? Obviously the, the COVID situation is self-explanatory, but even before that, why has entrepreneurship reached
0: this level? So the, my upcoming book goes into great detail about this, but the short answer to that question is we're becoming victims of our own success. And this has been happening since the mid-1940s, the peaks of entrepreneurship in America, at least being able to be accurately or meaningfully measured, were post-World War II, baby boom era, suburban sprawl, a tremendous amount of growth economically. and. At that time, there was about 20% self-employment in the United States. Uh, among, among immigrants into the United States, it's important to note that it was even higher, closer to 30%. But since that time, with very few exceptions, entrepreneurship has declined year over year. Now uh, despite the fact that about 70% of Americans have indicated that they would prefer to be self-employed, less than 7% actually is. Mm. And this is a significant contrast. We're not talking about the difference between 70 and 50 or 70 and 40. There's a tenfold difference between those who are thinking it and those who are doing it. And when I I really wrapped my mind around the significance of that was the day that I mapped the trajectory that we're currently on and figured out that in the mid-2040s, 99% of Americans will work for the other 1%. And I was horrified by that that projection. So, I have made it my mission to help others uh, sort of feel empowered and, and navigate that ethereal world between traditional employment and entrepreneurship, and and hopefully make that transition for up.
1: Those numbers are horrifying to me as well. <laughs> that, I that thank is. you
0: for using the same word. Yeah, no, I I
1: I'm speechless about that. But so so is it. Fear? Is it, you know, what, you've done some research on this in your mm-hmm. new book, Boss Brain, because I, I know that I, I've seen other research that suggests that the amount of dissatisfaction in the workplace tends to be at an all time high right now. Absolutely. So there's, there's this logic piece that's missing. Why are so many people making themselves miserable by going to a W 2 job? day after day, year after
0: year? So there. it's important to note here that business closures have maintained a, re- a pretty steady rate over the past 60 or 70 years. It's not as if uh, lots of businesses are failing, uh, and small businesses, I mean, in lieu of big business. It's actually that there are fewer and fewer startups. And my research in the book um, ten- shows how this has happened over a period of decades, is that there's this ancient battle happening inside of our head. And it's a battle between our instinctive optimism and our inherent need for certainty. If you haven't read Tali Sherat's book, Optimism Bias, I highly suggest you read this book. She's uh, she's done a fantastic study and proven the importance of optimism in the rise of humanity, and and specifically in in the entrepreneurial world. But simultaneously, we're wired to seek certainty. We want to be able to make predictions and those predictions come true all day long. Our brain does this, it tries to figure out what's going to happen next. And as a result of, uh, at least in the Western world, the base of Maslow's hierarchy has now become relatively certain. You know that you've got shelter, you know that you've got a grocery store close by, you know that you're pretty safe, all things considered. And as a result, that need for certainty or or i like to call it predictable adequacy is conquering our genetic and hardwired optimism
1: that's really interesting and you mentioned something that is very much true and has proven out in science again and again the brain likes things to be just the way that they are and not mm-hmm. change you know we, we refer to that as, as homeostasis and, and it's not simply things in our environment, like the safety of a paycheck. It's it's the weight we're at. It's the people in our lives. It's doing things the way that we've, we've done them. So we're fighting against biology, in a sense, when we're trying to talk people into walking away from that. So that's, that's very interesting. So I'm curious because I, I want to talk about something a little differently. We're going to talk about the brain a little bit more as it relates to your book. You spoke about Or rather, I spoke about in the intro, unleashing one's entrepreneurial instincts. And so how do we get there as opposed to being stuck in this loop where you know that we've got Maslow and we've got our job and we've got our mortgage and we've got all these things that make us comfortable, but we're making ourselves miserable.
0: Yeah. So um, the, the way you phrase that is interesting, and I'm I'm always happy to get this question because you don't have to get there. The instincts that you have for entrepreneurship that I enumerate within the book, there are four of them, are actually hardwired within you. They're they're the most primal parts of your brain. You are born with these instincts. You just learn to be an employee. You're taught to be an employee from the time you're in school, it's get good grades so you can go to university, go to a good university so you can get a good job. Pick a major that's practical where there's lots of jobs available, right? Then after you graduate, it's buy a home and chain yourself to a 30 year mortgage and then get married and have kids that further make you feel uh, locked into this obligation uh, of debt cycle and, and reduced innovation and an inability to escape. So. This narrative that we're telling ourselves uh, about what you're, quote unquote, supposed to do is not what you were born with. You were not born to be an employee. Uh, I'm sure, Dr. Richard, you know, George Land's study that proves a a massive number. I think it was 95, 96 percent of five-year-olds are are creative geniuses. And then by the time they're 30, only 2 percent of them manage to retain that. And it's just hammered out of us. Uh, Coincidentally, creativity is one of the four entrepreneurial instincts that I talk about in the book. And, and you don't have to get there to entrepreneurship. It, the reason we chose the words unlock is it's in there and you know it deep down in your heart. And that's why everyone, 70%, 100 million Americans want it and would prefer it in, a, in the opportunity to choose one or the other. So it's not about getting to entrepreneurship. It's about unlearning how to be an employee.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. We've had really deep discussions about creativity on my show with John O'Leary, whose book In Awe went into that in great depth. But I want to talk about the other three. So creativity and, and we do know that over time, because kids ask a lot of these why questions and they have right. these ideas with with no limits. But then we as grown ups and teachers and society put limits on people and that's what reduces sure. their creativity. Talk about though the other three.
0: So what we've
1: got creativity. What are your other
0: four? So so they run in a cycle and, and creativity is the last that then begets the first. And the first really is belief. Now, when I say this, people kind of give me an all shucks and they say, uh, oh, you know, when I hear belief, I think about religion, I think about faith, I, I think about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. But, but belief is really the foundation of every single thing you do all day long, even in a micro action, right? You, you stop at a red light because you think if you do not, you believe that if you do not, that you're going to be in an accident. You go to work because you believe on Friday, you're going to get a paycheck. So you're making these choices to take action based on what you believe all day, every day. So belief is made up of three components, and optimism is the first. And that's why we talk about this ancient battle between optimism and uncertainty. Uh, Most people can envision a future for themselves that almost invariably is better than the past or the present. And, And we're biased to do so, and that's a good thing. Because it, it, it pushes us to do things and to, to feel like we, we have an opportunity to make our lives better than what they are. The second component of it is self-efficacy. And then self-efficacy is believing that you have the skills to make that vision a reality. But the third component of belief is action. And here's where many entrepreneurs get slipped up. You can envision a great future and you can feel like you have the skills. But if you never actually take action... The belief doesn't manifest in a way that it starts to alter your destiny. Once you have belief nailed, you're able to move on to my second, which is really kind of based on attribution theory, but it is accountability. And the third is focus. And then finally is creativity. So belief and accountability and focus and creativity flow in a cycle. And the reason why creativity is last is creativity is what happens when you hit that problem that requires innovation. It's the point where some folks give up. It's the place where they say, well, what do we do now? Here's the the challenge that we're facing. And if you don't come up with a creative solution for it, you stay stuck there. But if you do, it enhances your belief that every time you meet a challenge that you can overcome it and belief starts the cycle all over again. So it's an oversimplified way really of going through all of the scientific studies. We quoted about 65 different studies in the book, but belief, accountability, focus, and creativity are mine.
1: I know you mentioned that action is where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck. What are are some of the things to help get unstuck as it relates to that?
0: So belief is reverse engineered. And that's why it requires action. You can't wake up one day and say, I believe I can build a successful company. And if you didn't believe it yesterday. Uh, It it requires some kind of evidence, some sort of uh, perspective about yourself. So even though you may not believe that today, by taking actions, even micro actions, even small steps over time, you begin to view yourself as a person who can make those changes, who can accomplish the the optimistic vision you have of the future. And that resets your perspective on yourself which is one of the most powerful things you can do. But that requires that you take action even before you believe.
1: Makes sense. And I know accountability is something that's been researched a lot of times. In evaluating the research that was out there, what did you find was best is it is it the spouse who says you got this, honey? Is it is it a mentor? Is it a mastermind? Was it, what? What does the research say? That's really the best way to be held accountable for creating these
0: new companies. So this is particularly salient in America right now, and and I spend a long time talking about the difference between the fixed and growth mindset within the the entire part about accountability. We're told. I'm a Gen X guy, right? So I was told that I could be anything that I wanted to be. I could grow up to be president. I could do whatever I want. I had all the ability, quote unquote, that I needed. What science has proven is that being told that you have fantastic ability and high levels of talent actually demotivates you, actually reduces the amount of effort that you're willing to put forth. Because if you do put forth that effort and fail, then that impugns your perception of yourself. What actually motivates people is a growth mindset where you understand that you can be better. If you've read James Clear's Atomic Habits, you understand the importance of compounding uh, small increments over time and to better yourself small amounts, uh, little bits at a time. And it makes a significant change on the other side. So ultimately, what you need to do to hold yourself accountable is not to focus on this enormity of your dreams and the massive work that's going to take to get there. It's focusing on being better tomorrow than you were today.
1: That makes sense. So it, so it, it isn't necessarily that there's any particular one way to be held accountable, because a lot of people do praise overwhelmingly, like, oh, I'm in a mastermind, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Or I've got, <laughs> right, an, account- right. I've got an accountability partner, you know, that, that sort of thing it's, it's not that at all is what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Carol Dweck's study with the fifth graders and the math tests. And, um, it's just proven how even small statements about ability over effort can undermine how, how people, how committed people are to their goals. And, um, Ultimately, accountability plays such a significant role in our society, I think, precisely because we like to think highly of ourselves. I don't know that humility is, ne- is necessarily a largely American concept. Um, I know that I was not incredibly humble as a kid, and life humbled me over time. And, um, and I learned there was a whole lot that I didn't know, and that I was very fallible, and that I could fail, and I did fail. And, and that was an important lesson for me at this point, to be able to be as good at what I do now as I am. If I've never failed, then I think I wouldn't appreciate the lessons that I brought forward with me. But w- without failure, you really never learn anything. And, and if you're not willing to take those risks to, to make those mistakes, then you're going to continue to operate within the bubble that you're in now.
1: Well said. So well said. And let's, uh, let's jump into focus.
0: Oh, I, I remember the world without the Internet, Dr. Richard. <laughs> and now I live in a world with the Internet. And um, I'm, I'm victim of it every single day. And we spend a tremendous amount of time in the book talking about uh, how these days we have skewed the, the perception that being busy is productivity. But being busy and being productive are two different things. The average American spends three and a half hours a day watching television. The average American spends about three, almost three and a half hours staring at the telephone and the average American spends about 110 minutes a day on household chores or landscaping or maintenance for their home, wherever. That's eight hours a day that the vast majority of Americans are spending, and they feel busy, but that busyness is really undermining their productivity. Uh, In the 70s, there, there's this precipitous decline in, in economic output as a, at an individual level. I'm sure you've heard about this, that uh, we were ramping up GDP in significant ways, and the individual productivity levels were really, really high in the 60s. And then in the 70s, they started to decline, and they steadily declined. And what the studies I have in the book reveal is that all of our technological advancements, our phones are now more powerful than the computer that landed on the planet. All of our, our technological advancements haven't caused us to free up enormous amounts of time that we now used to be, more predict, uh, to be more productive. Instead, it's allowed us to produce the same amount of results by inputting less effort. So the more our lives become optimi- optimized with dishwashers and phones and, and, and all of the things that make life comfortable for us, the less that we're becoming productive as a percentage because the country has continued to grow. So we're just actually putting in less effort and still yielding the same result.
1: It is interesting. I, I too, I, I, I suspect you and I are about a year apart and I, I remember the world before the internet and, and now that I have children who will never know what it's like to grow up without the technology, right? right. There, there are just instinctive things in them that they just... Assume that they can do. They can just ask something to be done. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's very interesting. But in in terms of focus, does any of the research point to what happens if we unplug a little bit in your book?
0: Yeah, for sure. So we spend some time talking about the, the 30-year mortgage and the buying a home and the, the commute length uh, getting higher and higher in America every every year. Right now, the average American's commute is about 26 minutes. But what's really painful is the longest commutes, the ones that are more than an hour, are actually on the rise significantly. So people are spending more and more of their time uh, maintaining their life rather than living it. And The studies that we've shown are that those who tend to minimize uh, the the luxuries in their life and and reduce the material possessions around them to only those things that can defer to them, don't require their time, and their effort, they they can really dominate their day. Johnny Ive talked about this when he talked about the design of the iPhone. He, He said when you can dominate a piece of technology, everything about it defers to you. And this sort of Bauhaus perspective on life uh, can be applied to everything that you do. It is if, if the things that are around you require maintenance, or they're extra pieces, or there's superfluous amount of material in your life in some way, shape, or form? It's occupying mental space, or financial space, or or, or space on your calendar, and and you're not able to dominate it, and therefore it can only go one of the way or the other. So it dominates you. That's why our days now are are dominated with maintaining our life rather than living.
1: Makes perfect sense. And I I just want to touch on creativity. I know we, we talked about it a little bit and we were kind of in inverse order, but I know that creativity then feeds back into belief. So just let, let's touch it briefly. How, how does creativity play out in the book and talk about some more of that research and how that feeds into the belief?
0: Yeah, so the, the components of creativity are... Are are things that I think are widely accepted as as American values. The first is ingenuity. And and Lord knows we have a tremendous amount of ingenuity. The challenge in America right now is that while we're simultaneously decrying our love for and and commitment to creativity and innovation, we actually are, are so comfortable now that we tend to shun new ideas. In the book, I talk about the Goldilocks zone for entrepreneurship. That zone is when your comfort and the predictability of your life is certain enough where you're, you're comfortably able to invite a little bit of risk. But it's not so certain that you're not completely averse to change. And that balance between those things is exactly where entrepreneurs live. That's where the people say, okay, I've got this nailed down pretty well now. And I'm willing to invite a little bit of risk because I don't have it nailed down so well that something could hit and change my whole world. And COVID revealed this. COVID really showed those who fought 26 paychecks a year and, and filling up their 401k and 14 days of vacation a year was the height of certainty. And boy, did we learn some lessons, right? About what essential is and about, about having control of your life. So- If we can embrace that ingenuity and not shun it, we can move to the second part of creativity, which is adaptability. Our ability to to adapt to change, and we're in the middle of that right now with COVID as well. It's really showing you hospitality and retail industries are coming up with amazing solutions for where we are in order to maintain the sales that they have and communications with their customer. And we're seeing this in action. We're seeing the evolution of the business model in action right now with ingenuity and adaptability. And that's fortunate because the last component of creativity is, is zeal. And I chose this word because the word zealot has traditionally had a negative connotation. And people just tend to say, oh, he's a zealot about something or overly obsessed. And I happen to like that word because if you're not zealous about what it is that you're doing in your business, then you're not really ready to take that step. So Ingenuity, adaptability, ability, and zeal are what makes up creativity and flows back into optimism.
1: Awesome. And I want to take a few moments and talk about COVID because you, you mentioned it two or three times. And as you were talking about creativity, somebody's listening to this. They've got a traditional job in this post-COVID world, and they're nodding along what, with with what we're talking about, that that's registering. But their the reaction is, well, now more than ever, I'm I'm scared to make that jump because there's so much uncertainty. Sure. What what would you say to somebody who feels that
0: way? Yeah, so I, I get it, and and 20 million, 30 million Americans are right there with you. We all feel. Them. So what I would say is, right now the SBA has 350 million dollars earmarked for new development facilitated application process to make money available to entrepreneurs. Right now, retail space or service space or office space uh, are are moving into second generation uh, brokerage for businesses that have closed. And that's sad for them, but it's good for future entrepreneurs because those spaces have already had the, the infrastructure developed. So you don't have to have as much money to make that happen. Right now, landlords are going to be paying very close attention. Everyone knows the commercial real estate market lags behind a little bit with unemployment, and you are going to see some decline in in the costs of retail space, at least from a commercial standpoint. And any one of those might be a really powerful, motivating opportunity, and it's all happening at the exact same time. You have pent-up demand from folks who have been locked in their homes for months. And and I don't know about you, but I've been suffering from cabin fever for weeks now, right? Just cannot wait to find myself at my favorite restaurant or at a new restaurant or anywhere where I can feel a little bit normal and human again. So those who are taking that step right now, it, it feels uncertain because we've taken a while. Ago. But if there's one thing I am willing to bet on, it is on America's spirit of entrepreneurship. And, and it's, it, you're gonna have to answer that inner call that you're feeling right now, because the low hanging fruit that is available is going to get picked first. And this time next year, all of those, those positive opportunities will no longer be available because someone else will have snatched them up.
1: Well said. This has been a really cool conversation, Trey, and, and timely as well. We're at time, but as you know, I ask everybody who comes on the show, if you could share with us your biggest helping, that one piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today.
0: Comfort is the enemy of progress. And the more predictable your life is, and the more complacent you become, and the less you take action. And... Unless you're taking action today, you're doing nothing to change your future tomorrow. So if you want tomorrow and the day after that and the week after that and the year after that to look exactly like today, then do what you've always done because if you don't change a variable, you cannot expect a different result. And the one thing that I can guarantee you is going to undermine your entrepreneurial spirit is to build walls around yourself and increase the level of comfort and safety that you feel. You hear a lot of folks out there say, oh, get, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and, and I think that's a little cliche, but I'm, I'm just going to spin it in that opposite direction so that you can remember that if you are comfortable, it is very likely that you are not progressing and nothing is going to change.
1: I love that more than I can express. The book is called Boss Brain. Tell us where we can pick that up.
0: You can go to getbossbrain.com forward slash waitlist. We have a a limited number of copies for podcast listeners who can sign up and have them drop shipped a few weeks before the book is in stores, which should be just in a few weeks here. So if you sign up for that now, we'll have the book drop shipped to you and the book will be at your favorite bookstore very, very soon.
1: Fantastic. And for those who want to check you out on the internet, tell us a URL where they can find you.
0: Treywilliams.com. It's T R A williams.com and drop me a note there, shoot me a message, connect with me via social media. And I love to have conversations about entrepreneurship with any and everybody. Fantastic.
1: Trey, thank you so much for coming on the Daily Helping today. This was an awesome discussion.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure.
1: Absolutely. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who chose to listen to this episode today. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show but most importantly go out there today and do something nice for somebody else even if you don't know who they are and post that in your social media feeds using the hashtag mydailyhelping because the happiest people are those that help others